we did something. We did something that might qualify as one of the coolest things we've ever been able to do. Absolutely. And if you've seen us on the road, you know that we talked to this person you're about to listen to. Corinne and I went to the Conjuring House and we put together an entire investigation, not just paranormal investigation. We did like, we took a journalistic approach. We did research. We went to the Rhode Island Historical Society and really took like a full historical and broad picture approach to figure out the history and the hauntings of the Conjuring House. But probably the most important thing we had to do to figure out the information and like who and what is haunting the Conjuring House was talk to someone who actually lived through it. And so we had reached out after some hunting down. It took us a while to find her. But Mm -hmm. we finally got the contacts. We finally got the digits of Andrea Perrin, the eldest daughter of the Perrin family. And we reached out. And to our surprise, she said, yes, she would be delighted to have an interview with us and tell us about her family's experiences and her experience. So we talked to her. And of course, it was like late at night. It was already Mm -hmm. spooky. (laughs) We didn't sleep that night. She's incredible. And as some context, we ended up speaking to Andrea after we had done our overnight paranormal investigation. And it was kind of as we were putting together our show. So it's really, really cool because you'll hear throughout this interview, a couple moments where we'll pause and add some commentary because after our interview and while putting together the show and reviewing our EVPs and the stuff that we had caught while we were at the overnight, there were so many like, holy shit, mind-blowing moments where you, Corinne, and I, we like put things together based on this conversation. So we thought that we would play our interview for you guys all to listen. And we'll interject just here and there a couple times throughout the episode to let you know what those holy shit moments were. Yeah. And if you want to know more, make sure you come to the last two weeks of our tour, Two Girls, One Ghost, for On the Road talking all about our investigation of the conjuring house enjoy Ta-da. we're so excited to have you and to finally meet you nice to meet you too how's your mom how are your travels how was everything oh it was crazy it was insane um mom's okay she's in bed hopefully she'll stay there mm. yeah she has a tendency to she's hooked to oxygen and and it's got a long tube, but she'll get up and wander around her room and then start yelling <laughs> help, you know? Oh, <laughs> my God. So, you know, be prepared for anything. That's all I can tell you. It's the reason why I have not done a whole lot of interviews. One night, I was in the middle of my show. It was like 1030 at night. And my mother, who can barely walk, she's you know pretty much lost the use of her legs shows up here in the parlor, opens the baby gate that we use to keep the dogs, you know, and starts walking toward the door, which has steps down to a concrete carport. And I'm like, oh my, oh my God, oh my God. And and I've got my phone here and I'm texting my sister, Christine, who's in the back of the house. Help, help. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she finally got here. Like, you know, enough, soon enough to stop my mother. Yeah. I was going to have to get up and walk away from my show and head my mother off at the pass before she cracked her skull open, opening the door to let the dog out. So scary. You live all the time 
not knowing what's coming next, just not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. It's scary. Yeah. Yeah. No, because she can't go under general anesthesia anymore at all. Under no circumstances, she won't come out. So if she falls and breaks something, that's it. Oh, my goodness. That's horrifying. Do you and Christine, are you guys splitting time and like taking care of her together? Yes. Yeah. And my sister Cindy lives a couple of miles down the road and she comes pretty frequently to help out too. But it is a round the clock job. I'm sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. And we have so many questions for you. And where do we begin? I know. (laughs) There's so much. Well, to tell you a little bit about the project that we were working on, I'm calling it a project, but really, Sabrina and I have been podcasting about paranormal activity, I guess. And we both grew up in haunted homes. So you know. Yeah. And we were like, oh, we really want to go to a haunted place. We would love to do an overnight investigation. And for some reason, we were like, the Conjuring House will be our very first time. (laughs) And so we went a few months ago. (laughs) And we've just been learning so much about it. And it's really piqued our curiosity because I think everyone, if they're horror movie lovers, has seen the Conjuring movie, movie. But that's quite different from what you and your family experienced, right? Yes. I wrote three books that detail and chronicle the difference between the truth, which is literally more fantastical than anything that they could conjure up in their imaginations to create a film, which, you know, is what they did. They cherry picked Mrs. Warren's case files. They read my books and they tried to piece a, a puzzle together and create their own third story that would sell in, they don't call it Holly Weird for nothing. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. When they read the book, they were terrified. They're like, we can't tell this story. That's what we heard. Yeah. I, I guess our most burning question that we have kind of sought to find answers to is what is haunting the home? Because, you know, I think the movie tells of Bathsheba, which is a story that's grossly misconstrued and and they called her a witch when, you know, perhaps that wasn't the truth. And we've heard aliens, we've heard bodies buried in the backyard. After living in the home, what would you say is haunting it? Right. You're the one who actually lived it. Yeah. So we're like, what happened? We we trust you. Well, if I'm gonna be completely honest, and I always am, the only accurate and appropriate answer is I don't know. It could be all of the above. You know, Mm -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. spirits, some have identified themselves through Cody and Satori and that magical work that they do. They have a system where they can communicate directly with spirit, which is verifiable, has been verified over and over and over again when they're getting information that gives a person's birth date and death date. And then you can look that up on Ancestry.com and see that individual's picture for the first time. Wow. Now that's absolutely amazing. I had my first conscious contact with extraterrestrials at the farm. I was only 13 when it happened. It doesn't mean that I didn't have contact before that, but I think I was so young that I didn't know exactly what I was experiencing. Right. Mm -hmm. But my contact goes back to very, very early childhood. 
before we ever lived at the farm in terms of my ET connection. I don't know exactly. I think that it's certainly spirits that have some kind of an emotional attachment to the farm. Yeah. That lived there, possibly died there and didn't move on. Or if they did move on, they come back to visit it frequently. There were numerous experiences that we had with the same spirits over and over and over again. One thing that I feel certain of is that the spirit that was haunting and taunting my mother was certainly not Bathsheba Sherman. Right. The spirit that came to my mother had clearly had a broken neck. Her head was hanging off the side of her lovely dress. Her head looked rotted like a desiccated hornet's nest and had two black hollow eyes, two small uh, black holes for sinuses, and then very thin lips and jagged yellow teeth. Wow. Which was indicative of a very bad case of syphilis. Oh, interesting. And syphilis can kill you, but first it will ravage your body. Right. But, you know, that was back in a time when STDs existed, but there was absolutely no treatment for them. So, Mm -hmm. but the spirit that was haunting my mother was most likely the original mistress of the house. And she was dead long before Bathsheba Sherman was even born. You know, it was Mrs. Warren who walked in the house the first time. And one of the biggest misconceptions between the film and the real story is that my mother had no idea who Ed and Lorraine Warren were when they showed up at our door the night before Halloween in 1973. No idea who they were. Another young group of investigators had come to the house, and they're the ones that informed the Warrens about our predicament and told them how to find us. And that was in August of 73, I believe, or September. And they waited until the night before Halloween because, according to Mrs. Warren, they wanted to come to the house when they thought they had the best chance of having an experience there. Oh, oh. Because they said that that was when the veil was thinnest at Halloween. I consider that nothing but superstition. Yeah. And when my mother said, well, then it must be Halloween every night here. You know, it must be Halloween all the time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the only time that things got very quiet and peaceful in the house was right around the holidays, almost like they would back off and give us an opportunity to just celebrate Christmas as a family. That's beautiful. Despite the darkness that, you know, you and your family did endure in that house, it is sweet to know that they gave you the holidays. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we'd go for long periods of time. You know, somebody asked me one time, asked me a very interesting question, and I really, really had to think about it before I could answer it. But, you know, my family lived there for roughly 10 years. And the question was, in that period of time, how much of that time do you think your family was being actively haunted for less, you know, lack of a better phrase. And I really thought about it before I answered that. Um, in fact, I made them come back to that question so that I could have some time mm. to, you know, let it process in my brain. At the end, I, I said probably 
a grand total of 24 hours, roughly 24 hours. The incidents that would occur were usually relatively quick. It was almost like the spirits had to somehow capture and harness enough energy to be able to manifest in form. Sometimes they didn't manifest fully in form. Sometimes they would just manipulate objects, make their presence known in a unique way, like turning the stereo up to the point where it would blow the speakers all of a sudden out of nowhere. Nobody's standing anywhere near the stereo. But it was apparently a song they liked, and so they just (laughs) would... You know, sometimes they would change the channel. Uh, It would go from one end of the, you know, back in the old stereo days where you had a a little thing to, I know it's all different now and you, neither one of you probably even know about this, but you could adjust the settings with a a little knob and the knob would suddenly turn and it would go all the way to the other end and then land on a station that they liked. Wow. I'm curious what the, what the station was that they preferred. What sort of music did they listen to? They preferred to listen to WLKW out of Providence. And at the time, it was uh, all the singers and standards of the 40s, <laughs> which is my favorite music, too. Interesting. And it's interesting, too, because that's how I communicate with the Galactic family is singing Mm. music from that period. And I just sing to them, you know, just songs like from Vic Damone or from Nat King Cole or Perry Como or, you know, all the singers from that period. I mean, I just, I have a whole repertoire of wow. all these things uh, that I know very well. I know every note of them. And I just go outside and I just sing to them and then the skies light up and people that are with me are blown away. And I said, just, you know, oh my gosh. and put it up and click. You can always delete if you don't get anything, you know, but <laughs> if you see any kind of a light anomaly, movement in your camera, in your view screen, just click it. You can always delete if you don't see anything that's up. And the stuff that we get, oh my God, the photographs that we got, I was just in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan Paracon. Oh my God. I mean, the stuff that we got was amazing. We probably got 40 or 50 vessels. Wow. Really? Could you share any of those with us? Like the photos? Did you take photos? Well, I didn't. Everybody around me did. And then they come running over and show me. And okay. What vessel is this? And what planet is that from? I'm like, <laughs> don't ask me that. How incredible. I love because they say music is like the universal language, right? Like we all express feeling and feel different things based on music. So the fact that you can speak to galactic beings through music is really, really cool. Well, the spirits seem to like it, too, at the farmhouse particularly. One of the things that we've discovered in the last couple of years at the farm is the ability for other spirits to come through that are attached to the people that are there. And that's amazing to me. A lot of people, historians particularly, are absolutely obsessed 
with wanting to know who these people were in life. It might sound a little strange, but I don't care who they were in life. That they still are in afterlife, that's what's important to me. That they are still attempting to communicate. That they are still Mm -hmm. making their presence known in remarkable ways. That's what's important to me. If they want us to know who they were, they'll tell us. They'll find a way to tell us. Right. One of the most interesting things that happened when we moved in, the day we moved into the house. Now, we had been to the house a a number of times before we actually owned it. We went there first in June of 1970 when my mother found the house, which inexplicably happened because of a whole series of things that had to happen exactly the way that they did for us to end up at that farmhouse. This is meant to be. And that's why I always describe it as a portal cleverly disguised as a farmhouse and that we were somehow, for some reason, called to it. But we never had any experiences there that anyone in the family remembered prior to the day that we moved in. It's almost like they were waiting in the wings for us to get there and had decided in advance not to scare us away before my parents had a chance to sign on the dotted line. Yeah. And the day we moved in, I walked into the house. It was freezing. It was January 11th, 1971. We had bought the house at the beginning of December, but my mom didn't want to move us over the holidays and who could blame her for that. And Mr. Kenyon, who we bought the house from, he wasn't ready to move out yet. So he lived in the house another month or so after my parents bought the house. I walked in the parlor door and turned into the dining room and he was standing at the table packing the last of his wife's china out of the built-in china cabinet in the dining room. And I said good morning to him and we chatted for just a moment. I knew I didn't have long because It was my job to help unload the moving van along with three of my other sisters that were big Mm -hmm. enough to carry boxes. April had already gone into the kitchen with my mother and April was only five at the time. So she was little and she was going to be mommy's helper unpacking the boxes so we could set up the kitchen. And when my mother got in the kitchen, she discovered that Mr. Kenyon hadn't packed a thing from the kitchen. And so she was having to unpack the boxes empty them, put everything out on the table, and then use the packing material and the box to pack up his belongings for him. He was not ready for us to move in. And apparently no one had gone up to help him. Mm. So anyway, that said, I was chatting with him. I picked up the box. I turned to walk through the front foyer into the kitchen. And there was a man standing there. And he looked like flesh and blood to me looked absolutely normal other than he was dressed oddly, I thought. And as I walked past him, I said, good morning, sir. But he did not respond, which is typical. A lot of adults don't even acknowledge children. So, you know, I I didn't say anything further. I just, right. <laughs> I was polite. That's all that mattered to me. So I went into the kitchen and asked my mom who the man was that was with Mr. Kenyon. And she said, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon. His son's on the way, but he's not here yet. I must have figured that it was a neighbor had stopped by and my mom didn't know. Mm -hmm. So I walked out the kitchen door and I walked back around to the moving van. In the meantime, my sister, Christine, 
had come in with a box. And she saw him and walked in the kitchen and asked my mother who he was. And she's like, I don't know. You know, I, I'm busy in here. You know, I don't know. And then Cindy came in and asked mom who the man was and why he was dressed funny. And then Nancy came in behind her and leaned over to Cindy and said, did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? I did, but he just disappeared. And that is how we discovered that we were living in a very distinctly different place. Oh my gosh. Than where we had just come from, which was a, a little Cape Cod house in Cumberland, Rhode Island, which is a suburb of Providence. That was our introduction to the paranormal. Interestingly, a few hours later, after we had gotten the truck unloaded and my father was using it to load Mr. Kenyon's furniture into it to take it to a storage unit because the house his son was building for him wasn't ready yet. We had to basically help him move out of the house as we were moving into the house is how that all went. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But Mr. Kenyon really didn't want to leave that house. His son is the one that forced his hand on that. And he insisted that it was our family that have it because he had told my parents that it was a wonderful place to raise children. We had 200 acres of forest and a lake and a river and creeks and ponds and the most beautiful land you can even imagine. Sounds like it. Sounds dreamy. I believe that he believed that it was a remarkable, magical place. But he also knew that there was activity in that Mm. house because dad came in to the room and he leaned over to him and Mr. Kenyon was still packing and he leaned over and he said, you know, Earl, you don't have to leave. This house is huge. There's, we can make space for you. Oh, the girls can you know, double up. I mean, we'll give you, we'll turn the, you know, a room into a room for you. I mean, you don't have to leave. You can stay with us. So sweet. And he got all choked up and, and he said, I can't, my son won't let me. It was a very tender moment. But during that moment, the man in the corner of the room reappeared. And I was there, Nancy, Christine, and Cindy. Four of the five of us, April was still with my mother in the kitchen. Mom never saw what we saw that day. Neither did dad or Mr. Kenyon. And that's when I thought, why do we see him? We, the kids, you know, we're kind of looking at each other like, yeah, I see him. Do you see him? Yeah, I see him. Do you see him? Mm -hmm. Just talking to each other, literally with our minds and with our eyes, you know, just do you see that? But Mr. Kenyon and my father did not see him, and he was standing just a few feet away from them. My father particularly seemed oblivious to his. If Mr. Kenyon saw him, he didn't say anything. I know my father didn't see him. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting. you know. And they often say that children are more in tune with supernatural activity than adults are. They kind of tune it out and you know, put themselves in their little 3D shell and try to live there happily ever after when we live in a multidimensional universe that they block out because it's too complicated. Uh, It's also why children who go to their parents and say, you know, mommy, grandma read me a bedtime story last night. There's only one 
series of questions that's actually appropriate to ask if your child says something like that to you. And if you've raised your child to be honest, then you say, she did? What was she wearing? How did she look? What story did she read? Did she mention me? (laughs) And instead, these kids get, no, honey, that couldn't have happened. It was a dream. You know, your grandmother was dead before you were born. And just dismiss them out of hand. Just dismiss it. Like, it's a dream. It's your imagination. Mm -hmm. It's not real. Right. That's what closes kids off. Well, it either closes them off or it also isolates them and they continue to have these experiences and they don't know how to deal with them. Right, exactly. And have nobody to discuss it with in a way that damages children. And it certainly doesn't give them an opportunity to, you know, spiritually or emotionally explore their physical surroundings and what they might be experiencing. Since both of you grew up in a haunted house, I think you know what I'm talking about. My father didn't believe my mother, which meant that he wasn't going to believe us. Yes, definitely. And we suffered not only a sense of abandonment, but we didn't feel honored. We didn't feel like our word was taken seriously by him. So we just never told him anything. And finally, after months and months of living there and all these different things happening, My sister, Cindy, having her bed surrounded with beings that were all talking in tandem and all saying one thing. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. Well, she comes running into my room and tells me, and she's scared out of her mind. And then, you know, don't tell mom because dad will be mad. Okay. So after about six months of that crap, where everything the pylon girl. I was the one that everybody in the night when they'd have an experience would come running and crawling into bed with me. Well, you're the older sister. (laughs) Right. You know, and I finally had to tell my mother what was happening. And I I did. I told my mother everything. Then she tried to get out of the sale of the house and there were no laws on the books to support our claim. Right. Yeah. So you said that your dad didn't believe until a point, but prior to living in this house, did your mom believe in spirits and the paranormal or was it this house that made her believe? Yeah, no, my mother was raised Southern Baptist, but she never believed in God. She was really kind of a pragmatic atheist, I guess, or at least at the very least agnostic. And then when she met my father, it was back in the, you know, the time, day and age when in order for a Southern Baptist to marry a Catholic, she had to convert to Catholicism, but she didn't believe a word of it. She was just going to the classes and doing what she had to do and spewing back out what she had to spew in order to marry the man she loved. Mm -hmm. I mean, we did go to church. We were all born and raised Catholic. We were all baptized. We made our first communion, you know, with the dress and the pretty white frilly stuff. (laughs) We both did that too. My mother said to me the the other day, she said, what is the the Catholic Trinity again? And, you know, and she was trying to think of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And I said, guilt, fear, shame. There's your Catholic trilogy. (laughs) There There you go. She's like, no, it's not that. It's something else. And I, you know, told her, I'll tell you something. One of the things that was 
the most amazing transformation that happened at that farmhouse was that my mother went in an atheist and came out a woman of faith, deep faith. Because when things, when all hell was breaking loose in that house, and there were times that all hell was breaking loose in that house, the one and only thing that would stop it was asking for help. I mean, and it could be just as simple as God help me, God help Mm. me, and it would stop. Wow. Yep. The invocation of that word would stop it, but it had to be heartfelt. Based on that, do you think that the spirits or the entities or whatever energies were residing there, the majority of them had nefarious intent? Nope, I don't. You don't think so? So do you think they were just realizing then in those moments that they were scaring you guys and taking that sort of like, God help me as notice that they should back off, that they should be more respectful? Most of the encounters that we had at the farm were not malicious at all. In fact, sometimes it was benevolent. That's good. And there were actually times when one spirit would intervene in a situation and make whatever was happening end would like cause the other one to back off. Really? Well, you know, and it's interesting because they all know each other. Even if they didn't know each other in life, they certainly know each other in afterlife. Right. And know that they're all somehow involved with the farm to what extent. They won't tell us. We've asked through Cody and Satori, we've asked, you know, where are you? And then there'll be silence. And then they'll come back after apparently some discussion and say, we can't tell you. I respect that. I do. I respect that. I, you know, maybe none of us are supposed to know where we go. The thing is, we go somewhere. I agree. I think that the spirits probably retain many elements of the character that they had in life, you know, and there are some wonderful, truly good people in life. And then there are some real SOBs. There were times that I really wondered what it was exactly that was mean spirited, you know, uh, pun intended, because most of them were benign or benevolent. Mm -hmm. Right you know, did not seem to wish us any harm. It seemed much more to me like they just wanted to be noticed. They wanted to be acknowledged. Yeah. Last summer, I was there with Cody and Satori, and there was a group investigating the farmhouse before I arrived, and somebody was doing an EVP session, and this is what they captured. They said into the recorder, Andrea's coming this afternoon. And what came back immediately was, we know. Oh, I just got chills. And then when I got there and Cody and Satori connected arms the way that they do and started, you know, making contact with the tapping that you cannot discern where it is coming from. You cannot. There is no physical location where it is coming from. But they tap out with letters and numbers, you know, communiques with us. And then somebody stays with Cody and Satori and writes down everything that comes through. I sat down on the sofa, and 
they said, you know, Andrea's here and we know. And she said, we would like to connect with you. And all of a sudden the tapping was everywhere, everywhere, omnipresent. I mean, it was just everywhere. And she said, woke up. Oh, hold on. I cannot talk to all of you at once. I can't. (laughs) They were excited. They were. They were. And she said, okay, you have a message for someone. They spelled out A-N-D. She said, Andrea. They said, yes. Tap one for yes, two for no. And then she said, okay, how many words? Four words. It's like charades. And then they came right through. And the four words were the message from me. We miss your family. No, stop. This is so... Yes, we got all of it on film. I mean, nobody can deny that this happened. Oh my gosh. I like, I know you can't see it through the computer, but I'm like full goosebumps. That's beautiful. Oh my gosh. This feels like such a good outcome for what you guys went through. You know, the benign hauntings, but also the scary ones. But how incredible that you guys made such a mark on this house, just as the house made such a mark on you and the history of horror lovers. (laughs) But it's just so amazing that they're still excited to see you, welcoming you back. Hey, quick little side note from us here, Corinne and I. After this interview, when we were putting together the show, I was reviewing some of the EVPs and I found one that we're going to play for you right now where a spirit very clearly says Roger. Mm -hmm. And it's just so incredible how much the house, the Conjuring house, remembers the Perrin family. And it was like the night of when we did our overnight investigation, we didn't pick up on that. We didn't hear the name Roger. We probably heard something, but we didn't. We didn't identify it. Sometimes it's hard when you're listening to an EVP live and can't really rewind to understand what the spirits are trying to say. But it was amazing after we heard that back because we're like, this seems to be a recurring theme. Not only do the spirits call back to the parents and reference their time with the parent family, but they also have a reputation of referencing people who were recently in the home. So a lot of people who will do an overnight, they'll get the names called out of the people who were there the night before investigating. So the spirits are like, oh, are you, do you know Tim? He was here yesterday. (laughs) And for Andrea- The spirits were very excited that she was going to be there, which is so lovely. And then when we were there, clearly they wanted to talk about Roger or reference Roger. Unfortunately, we didn't pick up on it in the moment. But here's that EVP. Let us know what you heard. And now back to Andrea. How often do you go back to the house? As often as I possibly can. I will never live there again. I'll never own the farm. I don't want to, but it's not because of them. It's I never want to be that cold and uncomfortable in any environment ever again. I live in the South now. I live in Florida. I go back and forth Mm -hmm. from Florida to Georgia where my whole family is. And uh, I only go up there on a Delta jet, stay three or four days, and then come home to the warmth and comfort of the South. (laughs) it's a very very unforgiving environment the property for the original richardson homestead it was not built by the arnolds but by the richardson family was deeded in 1680 the house as it stands now was completed in 1736 which is 40 years before the signing of the declaration of independence so it is a true colonial home one of the last remaining in the country 
Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, that house went through the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Arnolds were abolitionists, and the local history and folklore around the house was that it was used as part of the Underground Railroad to get slaves up to their freedom in Canada. I mean, we only know probably 2% of the history of that house and the people that lived and died in it. We're never going to know all of it. Right. You know, this was back in the days before electricity, let alone Facebook. Right. (laughs) We don't have any real record Mm -hmm. about the life and death of the people that lived there. And the reason it became the Arnold Estate was because it was back in the time when women were not legally allowed to own property. So when it passed from the Richardson to the Arnold family, it was not through a sale. It was through marriage. Mm-hmm. Thank God those days are over and we're right. not going back. Yeah. Hell no. <laughs> Just going off on a little tangent. So my mom bought a house in the last couple of years. How and often she's do you divorced. go back to the house? And it's still common practice that when you sign a house, if you're not married, it says yeah. your name and then an unmarried woman. How much fucking bullshit is that? Okay, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> I am a radical feminist. We love to see it. I believe in the power and the prowess and the intellect and the sensitivity and the joy of womanhood. And I am mortified by the misogynistic, pervasive attitudes that still persist in this country. Okay, we can't even talk about this because my head will just explode. Yeah, it just will explode. And then I don't know <laughs> clean up the mess because we're with you on that. See, it's scarier than the paranormal. Like it's probably scarier than anything you <laughs> you endured. My mother was right all along when she said, fear the living, not the dead. I mean, there's a reason why so many people want to be abducted, right? <laughs> Everyone's like, aliens, come take, take me. me away. Really? Get us off this spinning ball of rock that is, there's an awful lot of people that are just too ignorant to live. <laughs> and, you know, and I don't want to play with them. Yeah. I don't. And I'm not here for everyone. And, you know, I tell folks that all the time. I've reached the age where I don't care what anyone thinks of me is none of my business. That's their issue, not mine. Right. I need that as a tattoo. What other people think of me is none of my business. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of aliens, you said your first conscious or what you acknowledged to be encounter with aliens was in this house. What was that experience? And have you been abducted? Like, do you think you've been taken to a spacecraft? I do not use the word abducted because it has such an incredibly negative connotation. Okay. I prefer visited. It's the vernacular. I, it's really all a matter of semantics, really. But yeah, yeah. I don't call them alien because they're no more alien to this planet than we are. I call them my galactic family because that's how I feel about them. And I always have since I was knee high to a grasshopper. And I always have. I've always had that connection. I just didn't know what it was. And when I was 13, for some inexplicable reason, I found myself standing in the front yard at the farm by myself. And as the eldest of five kids, I always had a couple of my sisters with me at all times. You know, that's my memory of growing up was I was the, the babysitter. I was, you know, the one that helped mom keep a head count going. Right. 
But for some reason, I was standing in the front yard and the sky was completely clear. And it was a beautiful autumn day. And I had just turned 13. It was in October. It was beautiful. It was warm and balmy, which is unusual for October in Rhode Island. And then all of a sudden, the sky filled with what looked like multicolored cotton balls, just filled, suddenly filled the sky. And then I saw a shadow from over my shoulder from the west. The sun was setting behind me. And I saw a shadow just block out the sun. And all I remember is that everything went completely silent. Even I didn't even hear birds or anything. I heard nothing. And this entire flotilla of ships passed directly over the farmhouse. And the biggest one, what the, I guess what would be referred to as the mothership, was completely surrounded by smaller vessels. There'd be two round ones, two square ones, two triangles. They were all equidistant from the main craft. The main craft looked like it was a city that had been turned upside down. So that there were protrusions of with you could see lights in them. It was close enough you could see lights, but you know, my frame of reference and my depth perception was that of a child. And so I don't know if this ship was as big as Yankee Stadium or if it was as big as Manhattan. I don't know. But it was huge. And it just crawled through the sky so slowly that I was able to look at everything, every single vessel. And it was absolutely silent. Now, when you see something in the sky above your head that's moving so slowly that if it had been manufactured on this planet, it would have just fallen from the sky. There didn't seem to be any propulsion. Right. You know, there was no steam coming out or, or jet coming out of the behind of anything. It was just gently, quietly floating overhead. And then the next thing that I remember is being back in the house and peeking out the kitchen window, pulling the curtains, the lace curtains aside and looking and my mother asking me what I was looking for and and me not answering her because I did not know how to describe what I had seen. And it wasn't until months later that I told her. Actually, I told her after we saw activity at the back of the farm way up in the sky, three different vessels. And then they all came together and then it was like they had a wow. little a little chit chat and then they just shoo, they all took off in, in separate directions. Incredible. One of the things that we did during our investigation was we used something called the Franks box and the Estes method. The Franks box was originally created to speak to extraterrestrials, which was so cool that we were doing it in this house without a ton of knowledge of how much Andrea had experienced in her lifetime with the aliens. But one of the things that we were told by the aliens, or I guess by whoever was using and communicating with us through the Franks box, was one, they come through the window over and over again. Well, we were told to look in the windows, but we were also told they come through the windows always. They come through the windows. And then hearing Andrea talk about this, it also reminded us of when using the Frank's box, hearing something come through it and say fake cloud, which is literally exactly what Andrea was just talking about. These cotton color candy clouds and a flotilla of spaceships that would come through 
And so this was just mm-hmm. like a brain blast moment when we heard Andrea say this because I was like, holy shit, the spirits or aliens were trying to tell us how they come. And I know Andrea doesn't like the term abducted, but like how they how they visit. People. How they visit. We'll play those for you now. What do you know about aliens? Can we talk about aliens? In this room, there were many flying over their heads. The window... Fake. Fake? Cloud. Cloud. Can you be more... The window. Window. It is how they come always. Window. The window. Taken from the window. Look at it. It's not a trick. (laughs) Back to Andrea. Okay, so I know you had like some 200 acres, but did any other neighbors ever encounter anything like this? Well, according to the people that we knew there that lived there at the time, the house had a reputation for being haunted. But nobody bothered to tell us that until months after we lived there. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Mr. Kenyon certainly didn't tell us. I think he tried to tell my dad the day that we were moving in and he was moving out. He took my father for a a little walk outside. He said, Roger, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. And my father didn't know how to interpret that and said that he thought Mr. Kenyon was just saying, you know, all your girls are sleeping upstairs and these are very narrow, steep stairs. You don't want your kids falling down them to run down to the bathroom Mm -hmm. at night. So leave some light for your girls because it's a big, dark house. And we didn't realize until months later after we started to get to know people in the area that there was never a time ever overnight that they would drive by that house that every light in the house was on all night long. Every single light just glowed on the landscape like a a Christmas tree in the dark. And I think that Mr. Kenyon was trying to tell us that there was activity in the house. And the way that he kept it at bay was to keep all the lights on. Yeah. In such an ominous message. (laughs) Yeah. So what did prompt your parents reaching out? Because I know they didn't reach out to the Warrens and the Warrens kind of came in on their own, but they did seek help, right? No, my mother does not understand how it happened, but a group of teenage college students showed up at the house. It was Carl, Keith and Carl Johnson and their group from Rhode Island College. And Keith said that my mother had called him. They had put a a thing about being paranormal investigators in a local paper and that my mother had called him and she said, you know, I didn't call anybody. I don't know why you're here. I didn't ask anybody. I mean, very, very, very few people knew what was happening to us. I mean, this was back in a day and age where this subject was utterly taboo. But I also know that spirits can throw voices that's exactly what I was thinking. The spirits can utilize technology. We had many incidents with televisions, telephones, many different incidents where they would kind of interject themselves into a conversation or whatever. And my mother was, you know, going through a very difficult time 
Mrs. Warren described her as being oppressed, that there was a spirit that was exerting her influence on my mother. And so I suppose it's plausible, it's conceivable that she used my mother to make that call that somehow that group was supposed to come to the farm and they had some pretty bizarre experiences when they came and they're the ones. Well, it also sounds like the spirits then very clearly had a intention, like they They wanted their story to be told. I I believe that. Right. Because if we just think about the series of events too, you, you told us that there were a lot of things that had to fall into place for you to have this home. The person who was leaving the home didn't even want to give up the home. And then there's all of this just to basically get eyes on the spirits of the house. It's freaky how many things had to happen for this to all fall into place. And it does make you, or it makes me wonder about like, you know, the universe and how much is told in whatever spirit realm or dimension or whatever it is, wherever they are, like how they know everything. There's no actual ancestral connection between my family. I mean, for eight generations, the same family lived and died in that house. We were the first outsiders that ever lived in the home. Mm. And I mean, even the Kenyans, it was through this house being passed down and passed down and passed down through generations. And the Kenyans were, you know, related to the original owners. And so we were the first ones and there was no familial connection at all. And yet I felt very much and still do feel a familial connection to the spirits in that house. And I even love the cranky ones. I do. I love them. I mean, that they, <laughs> they're they never cranky with me. I love them merely because right. they exist. I think that it's, it's a miracle that they do. I mean, right. imagine, I think that we have so much to learn from spirit. And I get upset sometimes when people, we're paranormal investigative team, and we've got our medium, and we've got our psychic, and we've got our cleanser. And I'm like, what's a cleanser? Like, you know, borax? Like, what? And they're bringing somebody in to clear the spirits out of the house. Well, I think that's incredibly presumptuous. Mm -hmm. It's not their house to clear. Right. Just like that house was not our house. It belonged to them. We were the, you know, the invading army of children. Right. What right do we have if spirit didn't exist and try to communicate with people in one way, shape, or form or another, then we would live our whole lives feeling that sense of isolation of, you know, are we alone in the universe? Like, what happens when we die? You know, whole huge religions, world religions, are founded on the notion of an afterlife. What can teach you that better than an encounter with spirit? The notion of ghosts goes back all the way to the beginning of recorded human history. Ghosts are in the Bible, not just Mm -hmm. in A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. 
<laughs> this is something well beyond superstition. And I think that we're right on the precipice of proving the existence of an afterlife. We're right there. I mean, I lived long enough to see this happen. Well, it's funny that you say that because your house, the conjuring house, this feels sort of like when you were saying that it feels like a portal disguised as a farmhouse. Like this, I feel like more eyes on it, not to invade the conjuring house's space or the spirits there, but I feel like there are a lot of things that are unlocking or at least people's understanding and knowledge of what's happening by observing and communicating with what's there is inching us towards this period of understanding. And it's interesting too, like Sabrina and I, when we went, we did an overnight and I mean, we'd never done anything like this before. So maybe we went in really loving and eager and excited and just happy to be there. And so the spirits responded positively to us, but we both felt very calm, very peaceful. It felt like a very loving space. We were shocked when we first walked in because we were anticipating, you know, driving fearfully there. And then we get in and we're like, oh, we feel like we could be lulled to sleep here. Like this feels good. We feel good with who's here. Well, and I think also that has to do with, you know, the movie definitely portrayed a dark spirit and has given it this identity that isn't true. My question for you is, so there are so many spirits at the house and you were going through teenage years. Did you ever feel like there was a guardian or a spirit that really comforted and looked out for you in like a maternal way? Yes. It's interesting. You know, we felt that way about the man that I told you about that I saw in the corner of the room. Well, my sister named him Manny because she was only eight years old and she wasn't all that creative and he was a man. So she named him Manny. He was the man, Manny. Yeah. (laughs) He showed up at the house so frequently. He was like a peripheral member of the family. And so she just named him that. But when my mom started doing historical research on the house, she came up with the story of Johnny Arnold, who had apparently died in the house, um, drank horse liniment. I must have, you know, created some kind of a bleeding ulcer or something. And he, he died in the house. Mm. Oh, the horse liniment being almost pure alcohol, but a cheap way to get alcohol back in the days that he was living. And so mom figured that that apparition was Johnny Arnold. And we thought that for 50 years. And then, um, Cody and Satori were doing a session and a spirit named Joseph came through and everybody was looking at each other. Like, you know, somebody said, do you remember Andrea writing about a Joseph in the books? And no, I had not. And so in their confusion, he chose to clarify. And his next statement was Nancy called me Manny. Oh my gosh, chills! Uh huh. Chills again. <laughs> Blown away. Blown Aww. away. Oh, that's confirmation. It wasn't Johnny Arnold. It was Joseph. Wow. We don't even know his last name. Next time I go up, I'm going to ask him. And he was a protective spirit. You felt like he was watching out for all of you. Yes, absolutely. Very kind. Very sweet. He seemed to love Mr. Kenyon. Just you know, was fixated on him the day that Aww. he was moving mm-hmm. out and. 
and now Mr. Kenyon, you know, is obviously in the spirit world. You know, he died not too terribly long, maybe the second year that we were there. And he had visited us frequently. And, you know, obviously the spirits had an attachment to him as well. And particularly this one, you know, to still be making discoveries about this house, you know, for last year for ground penetrating radar to come up with a series of anomalies buried at the bottom of the stone wall. Five, right? Uh Uh-huh. At the bottom of the hill. Five bodies in the wall. Yeah, and then they stopped looking. So I'm I'm sorry, but I'm assuming there's two more that are probably on the yeah. other side of the of the stone wall. You know, when you think about the King Philip's War, the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, you know, there was an awful lot of shooting and fighting and trying to hang on to property and hang on to, you know, homesteads and hang on fighting the British and fighting this, you know, fighting fighting, fighting, fighting. And it wouldn't surprise me in the least. And they just want to be acknowledged. They just want to be known that they still existed. And, you know, so when mm, somebody goes yeah. in a house and says, I'm going to, to rid the house of the spirits, my attitude is, how dare you? Don't intrude on their destiny. Right. Mm-hmm. And then never, ever have them there to learn anything more from. And you also don't know what happens to them when you do that. Exactly. What if there's another layer and they're not going where you think that you're bringing them to? Okay, here's the safest assumption that any of us can ever make on this plane of action. We know nothing compared with what there is to know. We are absolute babes walking Mm -hmm, through a very dark forest trying to find our way to the light. We know nothing. We are just beginning to find our way. This is just a subject, all existing scientific inquiry that is accepted science now was once considered pseudoscience, including the shape of the planet. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that the planet is not flat. My cats would have knocked everything off of it by now. (laughs) Mine too. (laughs) I have a a question for you. So when we were in the house, we were doing the Estes method and a message that kept coming through was a direction, really. And it was to look in the windows. Does that mean anything to you? Or do you have any theories as to what that could be? Because we were too scared to look into the windows. There have been a lot of people that have captured full body apparitions in the windows, photographing it from the outside of the house. They like it when everybody's out of the house and then they'll materialize, they'll manifest in form briefly and they're looking out of the house. Oh my gosh. So maybe they wanted to show themselves. Right. Interesting. So after we talked to Andrea, we were a little bummed that we didn't look in the window. But then I was going through our EVPs to put them together for the show. And then... I called you, Corinne, and I was like, I'm kind of glad we didn't look because we'll play for you how many times they're telling us to look through the window. Not even every time because we were probably told 50 times and we snagged maybe 15 of them to play. And then immediately after we got another EVP, that it makes us glad that we didn't look through the window. Don't look. Don't look at what? Would you like one? Out the window. (laughs) 
Okay, we won't. We won't look. Thank you for that advice. (laughs) Okay, a second question. Another thing that they kept saying was, it happens at midnight. Were there a lot of things that happened specifically at midnight? Does that mean anything to you? No, no. That could have been a very specific event that they were trying to inform you about. I I don't know about that, but Hmm. we had a, a... grandfather's clock, a wall unit that my father, he inherited it when my grandpa died. And it always worked absolutely fine. It's still hanging in my house in Florida. And it works perfectly fine. But when we moved to the farmhouse, dad hung it in the parlor. When the first incident occurred in my parents' bedroom in May of 1971, the clock stopped at 5.15 a.m. The second major manifestation which occurred within that same year, the clock stopped at 5.15 a.m. and then it never ran again until we moved out of the house. Oh, my gosh. Oh. Right at the crack of dawn. I think that there must be some correlation between why these events happened at that exact time in the morning and would stop the motion of a clock that had, you know, one of those, t- yeah. t- you know, the balls in the bottom of it. Right, right. And for it to start working again when you leave. Perfectly. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's pause here for a second because Andrew is telling us the story about the clock. And to us, it was cool and it was awesome and it was spooky, but we didn't really think much about this story until we were going through all of our EVPs and evidence from the night, yes. Sabrina calls me and it says, holy shit, the clock. I was freaking out because, again, we were reviewing our footage after we had talked to Andrea. And we're going to play for you the EVP that we caught. Again, we're using the Frank's box and Estes method. So the spirits are communicating through Dana in this clip. But we had asked the spirits of the house if they remembered the Perrin family and if they remembered Roger and Carolyn and Andrea. And this is what they said. I still remember when they were young, there was a clock then. So when I saw that, <sighs> Corinne, I called you and I was like, my mind is blown. I know. I I have the chills again just thinking about it. Ew! <sighs> Yeah. Well, the spirits certainly remember. They love the Perrin family and they remember them so clearly and fondly. Yeah. And they clearly are admitting that they caused the clock to break. It does make me wonder exactly what midnight means, because right before we talked about the cloud, we did ask about midnight and specific times and what that could mean for the house. And we captured one thing that didn't feel connected to the clock and didn't feel overly significant to maybe the parents. And it was an ominous warning. Oh, we're going to play this one too. Oh, gosh. Okay. What happens at midnight? So I know you wrote a lot in your books and... I started reading book one, Corinne started reading book two, and we were like, let's read book three together. (laughs) It's our book club. But of the 24 hours that you would say you experienced hauntings, what was to you the most unsettling and perplexing experience? 
the night that the Warrens showed up at the house in August of 74, insisting that they needed to conduct a seance to determine who the culprit was that was causing so many problems. Mrs. Warren had said on her very first visit, she sensed a malignant presence in the house or a malicious presence, and she said her name is Bathsheba. Well, Bathsheba never lived at the farm. She was married to Judson Sherman. They lived together at the Sherman farm. There were only a handful of homesteads in that area at the time. So I am certain that all these, you know, people knew each other and relied on each other, you know, especially in the harsh conditions of winter in Rhode Island. But yeah, she named her, plucked her name out of the ether. Mm. And then she basically put the whole thing off on her. But she didn't really believe that because she wouldn't have said that they needed to conduct a seance to determine who the, you know, the real culprit that was causing problems in the house actually was. Right. So what I witnessed that night changed me profoundly because my mother was attacked. She wasn't possessed as it was represented in the film. She was attacked by a spirit that was allowed or something I'm not even going to say it was a spirit. It was something that was pure evil that was allowed through the conjuring of the medium who threw open wide the doors to the netherworld when she was doing her, you know, speaking in Latin and doing her thing at the table. Yeah. My father wanted no part of this. And it was the very, very ugly scene. And my mother was screaming and howling in pain, and, and her body was drawn up into the chair she was sitting in. Jeez. Like she was like a ball, like you would expect to hear her bones snapping. Like a human body doesn't do that. And she threw oh her gosh. head back and howled. Like it just screamed. It was horrible. It was the most horrible thing I have ever seen in my life. And then the table lifted and then slammed back on the table, uh, down on the floor. And all the lights and the candles and, you know, all their accoutrements, I mean, everything was everywhere. And then the chair she was sitting in lifted up off the floor. And then in a split second, she was thrown 20 feet in that chair into the the parlor. And everyone that was present in that house heard my mother's skull hit that floor. And everyone in that house thought that they had just seen her die. And that was the most traumatizing event of my entire life. And there is a reason why I do not attend seances. I do not practice tarot. I have nothing to do with the dark arts at all. Nothing. I touch a Ouija board, even though I think it's nothing but plastic and cardboard. It is the intention and the energy that (laughs) infused through that process that yeah. seems to release, you know, the right, or at least open some door to the netherworld where there's some communication. I'm just not interested. If I want to talk to the spirits, I just talk to the spirits. I don't need a conduit. I don't need right. anything to do that. I think intention is the biggest thing when it comes to the paranormal world. And, you know, there are plenty of people who try to be all macho and like, come at me, demons. And of course, then they're inviting. That's called testosterone poisoning, okay? Yeah, I've seen it in action. 
Yeah. <laughs> we don't want to be around that. That's no. not our vibe. No. No. And also, I'm thinking of the spirits in your farmhouse now in that moment. You know, whatever this woman had with her, maybe brought with her, had been contacting with or had problems with in the past that came with her into the home. I mean, how did the spirits of the farmhouse deal with that? They were absolutely terrified but what, by whatever she allowed in that attacked my mother. And my father, well, my father went to run to my mother's side and Ed Warren grabbed him by the arm to stop him. And my father turned around and punched him right in the face, took him right to the floor. A man that was like, you know, twice his size. I mean, it just punched his life out and then ran to my mother yeah. and then threw all of them out of the house. And they very sheepishly came back about a month later just to make sure my mother was still alive. Because that night when they left, she was unconscious and they didn't know if she had survived. The thing that upset me the most was that when Ed Warren was heading through with blood coming out of his nose and he saw me and my sister Cindy standing, crying, huddling in the hallway, having just witnessed what we saw, he told me not to call the police. I didn't know if my mother was laying dead on the floor or dying, and he told me not to call for help. And I was a, a kid and oh I was gosh. scared. That just gives me the worst stomach ache. They didn't want to be identified as having had anything to do with what happened in that house. Now that that true story didn't make it into the case files and certainly didn't make it up onto the silver screen is a disservice. It's an insult to the intelligence of people who really want to know the true story. And I wrote the true story. And yeah. I'll tell you, honestly, if I hadn't lived it, I don't know if I would believe it. I don't. I myself am, am very uh, skeptical, I guess, of a lot of things in this world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't trust a lot of what I hear. I have to know that what I'm hearing is coming from reliable sources. Right. There are literally things in my books, as you both know, that are, are literally unbelievable. But every single word of that story is true. And it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, I didn't hold back anything. In fact, because living at that farm resulted uh, ultimately in my parents' divorce, right. my publisher made me get a legal document for both of my parents to sign as a release because of what I wrote in volume three about how their marriage ended and why. Oh, wow. But people need to know that, you know, this kind of thing, if you don't know what you're dealing with, you don't understand what you're dealing with in a situation like that. And, you know, after 10 years, we were kind of used to it. Yeah. There were some really funny moments too, like the, the day Cindy was late for the school bus and had left her books on my staircase instead of her own and had to run through the house to go get her books and then, then go grab the bus in front. When she ran through, she turned and she saw the woman, the spirit in the house that used to sweep the kitchen floor because she didn't like it, that we were always tracking crap in from outside. I mean, she... <laughs> <laughs> and she would sweep the kitchen floor and she'd put everything in a kind of a nice little pile. And, and then she would take the straw broom and prop it next to a 
big cast iron stove, which sometimes was burning. And my mother would be like, I told you girls not to put the straw broom next to the stove. (laughs) And we're like, we told you we didn't do it. Well, (laughs) there it was. She's standing in the kitchen, sweeping the floor where we had all just tromped through the house. And Cindy just looked at her and she said, fine, you do it. I'm late for school. (laughs) You know, you want to be the housekeeper? Go ahead. Be the housekeeper. Because, you know, I got to go to school. And there was one. Cindy ran through uh, a a smoky kind of blue gray apparition in the front foyer, which you got to admit is a kind of spooky part of the house right there, you know, between the kitchen and the dining room, the middle room with the, Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's where we would, you know, see the spirit we called Manny, but also our dogs would not go through that hallway. They would not go anywhere near that cellar door. If they wanted to go in the kitchen, they would ask to go out the parlor door and then walk outside the house all the way to the kitchen door and then scratch on the kitchen door. Like, okay, now we can come in and have our dinner. My gosh. Trust your pets. pets. Trust your pets. Now I don't want to walk down there. And, you know, that door opens and closes at will on its own. Definite activity in the cellar. My father finally had to admit that there was um, definitely stuff going on in the house because nothing in the cellar of the, you know, the mechanics of the house, you know, whether it be the water heater or whatever that was down there, it was all antiquated. I mean, it was as old as dirt when we moved in, but nothing would ever break down unless he was home. And, you know, he was a traveling salesman. He was out on the road a lot. I wasn't a truck driver like they made it uh, look like in the movie. He had his own business, what they call the trunk business. He was a jewelry salesman. And he would, you know, buy up all of his jewelry in Providence, which was the jewelry capital of the world at the time, and then go sell to customers as far north as Quebec, as far west as Ohio, and as far south as Florida. So, you know, he was on the road a lot. But when he would come home, something would break down. You know, the water pump would stop working or the heater would stop working or whatever. Whatever it was that would draw him down into the cellar. And once he got in the cellar, she would come up behind him and then just run her fingernails along the back of his his shoulders and down his back. <laughs> and do you think this is the original owner, the woman who was also haunting your mom? Yeah, I think that she hated my mother and that my mother posed some kind of a threat to her. She loved my father and she coveted us, the five children. My sister, Cindy, saw her. My sister, Christine, saw her. My mother saw her. And I saw her once telepathically. Wow. Going back to your question, Sabrina, for me personally, the most impactful thing that ever happened at the farm was when I came home from college to celebrate my 18th birthday with my family. I had just started school And I was absolutely miserable. I missed my family. I missed my spirits. I missed the farm. I was completely out of my element. I just was, I was miserable. And so I begged my parents to please fly me home just a few weeks after I had started college. 
And when I came home, my dad picked me up in Providence. And it was back in the days when they actually served food on the plane, like real meals, you know. (laughs) And so I had eaten and mom had a nice dinner prepared. But I said, I'll be back down. I went up to my room and dropped off my luggage. and, And I was so cold in the house. And in that amount of time, I have forgotten the difference between natural cold and supernatural cold. And I didn't realize that what I was feeling was supernatural cold. Mm -hmm. And and mom thought it was because I was empty that I had eaten on the plane. And so my family was gathering in the dining room and there's that huge opening between, you can see everything between the two rooms. There was a fire burning in the fireplace and I came downstairs. I even remember what I was wearing. Mm. I was wearing my brown corduroy pants and I stood on the hearthstone and was holding my hands behind me and I was backing up. And my last conscious thought before this happened was you're standing too close to the fire because I was wearing corduroys. And I mean, they could literally spontaneously combust. I mean, I was standing too close to the fire, but I didn't feel the warmth of the fire. And then the whole right side of my body went ice cold, ice cold, and I couldn't move. My father was sitting at the head of the table. My mother was sitting next to him, my sisters. And all of a sudden, dad dropped his fork and it hit the side of the plate. And I looked up and he was staring, not at me, but to my right. And he said, someone's come to welcome you home. What, Dad? Like, what? All I could do was turn my neck. And I turned and I looked directly into the face of a woman who was a mirror image reflection of myself, probably 60 years older. She looks just like how I look now, except (gasps) that she had a wad of hair all wrapped on the top of her head. And she was dressed beautifully in a full-length dress with leg of mutton sleeves indicative of the mid-1800s. And she smiled at me. And she was a mirror image reflection of me as I am now. What do you think that means? I don't know. But, you know, nobody saw her face. They could see her form because she was standing facing me. But something told me not to say anything about that right away. I'm so curious if that's, I mean, you say your family had no blood ties to the home, but like, what if in a past life or something, that's why you were meant to be there? It was the first time that I actually thought that reincarnation was perhaps a real thing. Yeah. Wow. But she was obviously in another dimension. She was in another realm. I mean, I could see her, but I could also see through her. Oh. And then she just kind of evaporated. And the day we moved out of that farm, which was about four years later, is the day that I told my mother who I saw standing beside me on the hearthstone that night. And she grabbed me and she hugged me and she said, I always knew we bought this house for you.
So this is my other question. You clearly have such a connection to this home, to spirit, to the galactical family that you say, but does anyone else in your family have as much of a connection to it or is it mostly you? Oh no, everybody in my family has a connection to it. It doesn't mean that they'll talk to you about it. (laughs) My family is perfectly fine shoving me out to be the face of our story so that they can go on and live their anonymous lives, which they love. It actually works out really well for them. I do drag them occasionally to an event here and there. In 2019, before the age of COVID struck, I took my father and my three living sisters. My sister April sadly passed away in 2017, very suddenly and tragically. I'm sorry. But she has made her presence known to all of us myriad times. I mean, it's like she's around us all the time. So and and constantly giving us messages and constantly interfering as she always did in life. Uh, She does so in afterlife, too. She even ratted herself out at the farm one night with Cody and Satori about something that she had done the first Christmas after her passing. I'll tell you about that later. Oh, my gosh. I told them all, I said, you are going to walk into this venue and you're going to walk into a wall of love for our family. And these are people who feel like they know each and every one of you very well, very personally, and you don't know who they are at all. And they're like, oh, and you know, you're exaggerating. I mean, how can it be like that? You know, and how can it be, you know? It's just a conference. Don't you just talk about ghosts and ghouls and spirits and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) You don't understand. And I was like, okay, fine. You don't have to take my word for it. You're going to experience it. We all went. We all flew together out of Atlanta. And um, they walked into a tsunami wave wall of love. And nobody got any sleep all weekend long. I mean, you know, like 18, 20 hours at a time and selling books and giving lectures. And I was up on stage and then I dragged them up on stage and (laughs) it was over and done with. They're like, no way I'm doing this again. And we're all very (laughs) sorry for accusing you of exaggerating (laughs) when you had actually played it down some compared to what their experience of it was. And my sisters, you know, they all know what my sister Christine likes to call my little friends. I'm like, first of all, they're not that little. Second of all, you know, (laughs) you know, give me some space here with this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, you go play with your extraterrestrials. And then they saw hundreds of people follow me outside that night after the first full day of the conference, like I was the Pied Piper of the paranormal. And hundreds of people came outside to have the experience that they had heard that I can provide by simply helping them connect with our galactic family. And so they followed me outside and Christine took, I think, 18 photographs of a vessel coming right in, right over us, like hovering right above us. Andrea, we're going to come to one of these. I need to see this. Yeah, we need to. It's fun. It's great. 
I mean, you'll leave so filled with love and joy and so uplifted. It's so, you know, there are people in the paranormal that really resent the hell out of me because I'm all about dispelling fear and bringing people to some point of knowledge and understanding and acknowledgement and appreciation for spirit rather than being fearful all the time and having, you know, uh, why they need that adrenaline shot. I will never know. The only horror movie I've ever seen in my life was Conjuring and it's because I sort of had to. (laughs) (laughs) Have you watched it more than once or just once? Oh no, I've seen it. Oh my God. I've probably seen it 50 times. If I've seen it once, I've seen it 50 times and over and it's the 10 year anniversary of it right now this year. Oh, I don't even know how many places we've played it, different events that, but everybody's playing the conjuring. So because it's the anniversary and then they want me there to discuss it and to be able to clarify, you know, the glaring discrepancies between the film and the truth of the matter. And believe me, when I tell you the truth is stranger than fiction, well, you know, you've read the books and it's not an easy read. It's very interactive literature. It's not all written chronologically. It's more along the type of haunting. I just ask my reader to understand that everything that you're reading happened in the 10 years that we lived there. I mean, what is time anyway, right? (laughs) It's, It's an illusion anyway. But we really never did know if it was, you know, if it was 1976, if it was 1845, if it was 1737. We didn't know based on what dimension we were going to be thrust into when we had this interaction with a spirit that lived in that period. It was like we were dimension hopping all the time, all the time. And I wanted my readers to have that same swirling sense of timelessness. So uh, volume one and, you know, begins chronologically where you see you meet my family as a perfectly normal family and you see everything that happened along the way so that that transition occurs where we go from being a normal family to a paranormal family and how that happened and more importantly, why that happened. There are 10 chapters. It's broken up over three books. It was too much to print in one. And each chapter has a, a whole series of sub chapters which are stories, individual stories. So I tell them, read it this way. Suspend all notion of linear time. Like the space-time continuum has just ceased to exist as you perceive it, okay? And so if you're reading a story about something that happened to Cindy when she was eight, and then the very next story is something that happened to Cindy when she was 14, you didn't lose those six years. You know, let it kick you back a little on your heels. Let it cause you to pause and reflect on what is the correlation and the integration between these two events and episodes, why they are side by side, and how many times did that happen to that child? Ask yourself that. Yeah. Those books could have been thousands of pages longer. But at some point, it would become repetitive. And a lot of times, the same thing would happen over and over and over again. We had an incident when my mother was trying to convince my father that the house was haunted and that she didn't think it was a good, safe environment to be raising their family in. 
and he's fighting with her saying, I don't believe in ghosts. And she's screaming at him. The existence of spirits in this house is not contingent upon your belief in them, Roger. (laughs) And all of a sudden, one of my mother's antique bottles goes flying off the sideboard across the slams into a 250 year old glass window and neither the window or the bottle break. And the bottle falls on the floor and just spins around. They should have been fractured into a million pieces. And my father's like, well. I mean, that's like a ghostly mic drop, right? That's the. (laughs) the It is very good. I'm going to steal that analogy, Sabrina. Thank you very much. (laughs) It was a ghostly mic drop. He didn't even have a response. So his mature way of dealing with it at the time was to just simply turn and walk away out of the room and just pretend it didn't happen. Yeah. But eventually he couldn't deny it anymore, but the damage was already done because my mother would just as soon swallow her own tongue as lie to anybody. And and certainly, especially her husband or her children or expose us to anything that was unhealthy. And she wanted to sell the house. And he's like, no, housing market in the country was tanking. I mean, there are a thousand reasons why we ended up staying at that farmhouse. People ask me all the time. You know, what the hell's wrong with you people that you stayed there? Well, when you've taken every dime of money that you can muster and some that you borrowed in order to buy a Mm -hmm. 200 acre estate, and then you're there for three months and you put it on the market and try to sell it when the housing market is crashing in the United States and the inflation rate is off the charts and all hell is breaking loose in the Middle East. And the oil cartel is founded, and suddenly the price of heating oil in the United States goes up three times. You know, you can only buy gas like on odd or even days, depending on the number that your license plate ended in. Yeah, right. You guys think 2008 sucked? You have no idea. <laughs> yeah, 2008 sucked. Don't get me wrong, it did. It was nothing compared to 1971 and 1972. And my parents would have lost everything. We would have been bankrupt and we would have had no place to go. You know, that's one thing that was represented in the film that was true. You know, when the Warrens are talking to, well, Ron Livingston, who played my dad, the cast and crew of the film, they were wonderful, by the way. I just have to say, I really do. They were wonderful to us. Absolutely wonderful and so incredibly respectful. We spoke with Chad and Carrie Hayes. Yeah, they're great guys. They're really great guys. And, you know, when my sister April died, everyone associated with that film reached out to our family to express condolences. All of them. That's so It was lovely. Anyway, I got off track. But, yeah, when, you know, my father just didn't want to admit. And 40 years later, he finally admitted the reason that he was, you know, king of denial was because... He was terrified Yeah, that he had moved his family into an environment that he had zero control over, zero. And that scared him more than anything. Yeah. And he couldn't be home with you all the time right. to protect you from right. whatever was happening either. So I'm sure that took a toll. Easy to be ostracized. I almost got expelled for talking about it with my friends at school because... I talked to some of my friends. Some of my friends would talk to other people. Other people would come to me. You know, other students would come to me and ask me. I got called into the principal's office, and I was told that not only would I be expelled, 
as a straight A student from Boroughville High School, but that the principal would make sure that I never got into the college of my choice. Why? What was their reasoning? Because ghosts don't exist. That that's just so ridiculous. I want to quote your mother that the existence of ghosts is not what was it again? <laughs> upon his belief in them. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean yeah. when I shut wow. up, I shut up for decades. I didn't discuss yeah. this with anyone. This was not discussed outside of our family and very close circle of friends, some of whom had had experiences at the farm. And, you know, still we're years, decades later, still trying to process it, still not being able to, you know, quite wrap their minds around what happened to them at the farm. Right. Well, I will speak for myself and Corinne, but we are so grateful that you are talking about it now and that you have written these books and, you know, the movie is out there. And so, yes, there's this perception of the home. In a way to conclude this, one, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. But then what would you like people to take away from hearing of your experience and what belief do you want them to take away from your story? I don't want to convince or coerce anybody to believe anything ever. Our belief systems, each and every one of us is a personal endeavor of spiritual ascension, and we are all on our unique journey. What I do want to do is enlighten and inform people. They don't have to believe a word I say. I don't care if they do or they don't. But if they do, then just to be open and to let yourself make a connection that will be life-altering if you allow it to be that will be mind expanding if you will allow it to be. I know, be not afraid of the darkness. Be the light you seek in this life. That has been my mantra for many years. And it is a rule that I live by. You know, my mother once said to me, she said, what are you going to title the books? And I said, I don't know. You know, I was like 300 pages <laughs> in. I was like, I, didn't even thought, I haven't even thought about that yet, Mom. <laughs> and she said, well, House of Darkness, House of Light. It was both. And she was right. Mm. And she said, you know, I'm so proud of you for doing this. You know, meanwhile, like, you know, I have no job. All my money is just like being pissed away that I had saved <laughs> my whole life so that it was a a, a difficult time for me. Part of the time I thought I was doing something that would be enlightening for the world. And then the rest of the time I was thinking, nobody's going to read these books and, and I'm going to just, you know, ruin my future by doing this. But I persevered because my mother said to me this, this is not the kind of story that one should rightfully take to the grave. If we lived it and we did, then you have to tell the world about it. Yeah. And she was right. And by finding the courage to tell the truth of what happened in that house to myself and my family has changed everything. Everything. Our family is known around the world by countless millions of people. And I don't in any way resent the conjuring at all. I'm grateful for it because had it not been for that film, People who are legitimately interested in finding out the true story behind the movie 
have the books to go to. And had it not been for yeah. Conjuring, I wouldn't be one of the very best selling authors in this country, certainly in this genre. All these years later, I mean, I published the first of the volumes in 2011. It's 2023. And I'm selling more books now than I did when the movie was released. I mean, again, it, it really emphasizes to me how almost kismet and yeah. there's a bigger picture here. There is. That we don't have the knowledge of, but it's all meant to happen this way. Well, you know, one of the messages that I impart is actually a quotation. I'll paraphrase from Marie uh, Curie. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less. That's beautiful. So, you know, there's the truth of it. And, you know, I, I girls, I got to tell you, girls, you're girls to me. I'm like old enough to be <laughs> grandmother. We named ourselves two girls. So <laughs> two girls. That's right. I have so enjoyed spending this time with you and keeping company with you. And I mean, we barely scratched the surface. I know. I know. <laughs> so just come up with a whole bunch of questions that swirl in your head after having this conversation. Yeah, we will. And I promise you that we will do this again. I promise you. Thank yes. you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Do you have any events coming up? Yes, I'm going to be at the Ocean State Paracon in Harrisville, Rhode Island on the 9th and 10th of September. And I'll be at the farm and there's going to be a whole bunch of people coming through and doing tours. So if they bought a ticket to go take a tour of the farm and I just happened to show up, well, surprise. <laughs> yeah, the Ocean State Paracon is a wonderful event. And we do it at the Assembly Theater in Harrisville, right in the center of the village. It's a fantastic event. And then I'm going to be lecturing at a theater in Middleborough, Massachusetts. And then I'm going to be back to the farm for the whole Halloween weekend. And then I'm going to greet a whole bunch of Brits that are going to be in Boston Harbor on a cruise ship. They're doing a paranormal tour of America up the Eastern seaboard. And that's going to be the day that they'll be in Boston. So I'll be close. Wow. I can go up and spend some time with them that day. You are busy. <laughs> and I'm done for the year. Done. Good. And I will be home, which is where the heart is, even though the farm will always be my home and heart. And Rhode Island is my home and heart. My family lives in the South now. And so I will be yeah. caring for my mother, who is in hospice home care, palliative care. And my sisters and I take very good care of her. And the hospice nursing staff is, they're earth angels. They are. They're just earth angels. Oh, That's what they are. Then I'm going to cook turkey on Thanksgiving and I'm going to <laughs> beautiful decorate for Christmas and we will gather our family together and God willing, my mother is still with us and we yeah. will celebrate the holidays together as we once did. Oh, good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was, I mean, we could talk to you for hours, but. And we will. We'll do this. I mean. Yeah, we'll continue. Absolutely. We have a friend in common who highly recommended you to us. Oh, good. You know, you're stuck with me now. I'll join you. <laughs> you're stuck with us, so <laughs> it goes both ways. <laughs> I wish that I had been there at the farm when you were there. Uh, and I hope I know. to make that happen again, where all of that will coincide. 
I can be there with you to experience that and to share that. Absolutely. We would love that. I know. Well, I live in Boston, so I'm not far away. So Sabrina, who's in L.A., if we I'll figure out a time Let to me do know it, when. she'll come out. Let me know when. I'll fly out. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Andrea. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. I hope that all is well. Stay safe. Don't die. COVID's still around. Same to you. And uh, it's never going to leave. So just be well aware and take care of yourselves. And we will, we will talk again soon. And thank yeah. you to your yes. audience for listening. I appreciate it. And if you want to know the real story, read the books read the books which we will be linking in our show notes so everyone can grab them all three okay and we wish you the best we'll be thinking of you your family your mom thank you and thank you again for doing this thanks for meeting with us have a lovely evening my ladies you too you too good night andrea